You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. When I think about the most difficult times of my life or the most difficult seasons, for me it's pretty easy to pinpoint what those are. Uh, one would be when my wife and I's marriage was about to fail. This was like five years ago or so. And this was when we were non-believers and uh, we were going to part ways. She didn't want to be married to me anymore. I thought I was a great guy and I really wasn't. And uh, that was at one point, like the darkest season of my life. That was one of them. I would say the other one is is right now with uh, what we've been going through with. We've had two miscarriages in the past year and, and just, I don't know, the day-to-day stuff, I guess. It's, it's kind of a hard time for us. And uh, I'm thinking about these things because, you know, we're, we're in the book of Job. And how are we going to be comforted in, in our suffering without, like, thinking about it and reflecting on it? So I want you to do that, is think about... And what are the, what were the darkest seasons of your life? I mean, maybe it's right now. Maybe it's a different time. But when, when was the most difficult season of your life? What were, were you going through? And we don't like going there. Uh, thinking that emotionally, intellectually, we don't like going there. But it's helpful as far as, especially if you're in the middle of it, to get any sort of healing or comfort from God. That's, that's where He comforts us, is, is when we're wrecked. I mean, that's when, I think the best way to describe that is, just being wrecked. Like, I, you don't have anything left. I mean, you don't know uh, how you're going to get the strength to go the next day. And it's just one step at a time, being wrecked. And that's where Job is. I mean, we're going to finish it tonight. And Job is wrecked, right? Like, we've all been wrecked, or we're being wrecked. And really, this life is a continual process of being wrecked, I would say. Even if there are some good moments, and lots of good moments, it's this, this continual being wrecked about this life, living in a fallen world. And one of the things I love about the Bible, uh, God's Word, is every major person in there, it has their experience of being wrecked. Like It doesn't present anybody as this like perfect life, and they're this really godly person, and all God ever did was rain blessings upon them. Everyone has their darkest moment in there. I mean, if you think the first human in the book, Adam and Eve... Their darkest moments are in there, the hardest season when they're, they lose fellowship with God and they're kicked out of the garden. And then they see their own son murder another one of their kids. That's a dark season. That's a hard time. Abraham, as he's waiting for years and years and years to receive the promise that God had promised him, his son of his own heritage. And, and he goes and looks for other sons and uh, has a son outside of his marriage. He has like a nephew as his heir. I mean, that's a dark time. He takes his son up to the mountain and God asks him to sacrifice him. I mean, these dark times, Noah, as he's in the ark, seeing humanity being wiped out except for his family. I mean, everyone in there, everyone in the Bible, their darkest, most wrecked experience is in 
the Bible. And so God never presents us with this idea of like, it's just smooth sailing, it's just blessings. I mean, everybody, everybody, even Jesus himself, his darkest time is in there when he's crucified. I mean, that's what it's all building up to. Really, that's the climax is the low point of Jesus, his crucifixion and the low point of humanity that God would come to this earth to rescue us and then we would kill him, right? That's a pretty low point and that's in there. So everyone in the Bible, every major person in the Bible is wrecked and we are wrecked. Job is wrecked. And when I think about that, uh, one person in particular, let's think about before we get into Job is Peter. And I think Peter's darkest time, I, I can't say, you know, personally, but from, from what I can guess his darkest moment is recorded for us in the Bible. When Peter, who has followed Jesus for three years, been with him just about every day, followed him, saw Jesus raising the dead, saw Jesus healing people, multiplying the fish and the loaves, saw Jesus doing miracles, Jesus walking on water, Peter even walks on water. He sees all this. And I can't imagine the, the darkness, the, the wreckedness of Peter's life when when he denies Jesus, when Jesus is arrested and all the disciples abandon him, and Peter follows him, but when they ask Peter, don't you know this guy? Weren't you with him? No, I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times he denies Jesus. And sometimes I think we kind of like brush over that when we read the Gospels, but, but if you think about that, that was Peter's Lord and Savior, his best friend probably on earth, Jesus was being arrested, and after seeing all Jesus had done, Peter, he doesn't stand up for Jesus, he denies him. And then Jesus dies, right? Peter doesn't get a chance to make up with Jesus. He doesn't get a chance to say, I'm sorry, Jesus, I shouldn't have denied you. I shouldn't have betrayed you, because he said he wouldn't. He didn't get a chance to do that. And then when Jesus resurrects from death three days later, who runs to the grave? to see Jesus, or the tomb. Well, it's Peter. And John makes the point of, yeah, Peter got there first, but, but he, uh, I got there first, but Peter just went in first. So Peter makes sure to get to the tomb. Because the last thing that happened before Jesus died, that he got to, that connection was to betray him, or not betray him, to deny him. Right. So then it shows, it's Peter going to see the resurrected Jesus. And then there's this beautiful part. Well, let's just stop right there. About the being wrecked. Right? And, and Job here is wrecked. We'll, we'll get to the restoration in a minute. So Job, and we're going to study tonight, you know, finish the book, has been, his kids have all died. Everything he worked for is gone. His house, his possessions are destroyed. His health is gone. He's been wrecked. Not only that, God shows up. Well, his friends show up first, and his friends don't help. His friends add to the wrecking. They don't help him at all. And then we see God showing up last week. And God doesn't come in there and say, Oh, Job, you know, it's all, you know, give him a big old God hug and say it's all good. He kind of wrecks him a little bit more. He says, Job, I'm going to question you and you answer me like a man. Where were you when I was creating the earth? Where were you when I was making the animals? Can you control the stars? Can you make the earth spin? And he wrecks him a little bit more. And at this point, he's wrecked. Right, like Peter was wrecked, like we get wrecked. But then where I was going with Peter, I kind of got ahead of myself. When after Jesus resurrects, and after Peter had denied him, there's this beautiful scene at the end of John 
where Jesus goes out of his way to, to talk to Peter one-on-one. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And why would Jesus do that? It's, you know, the three denials and the three affirmations. He denied, Peter denied him three times. Jesus gives him three chances to say, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Not because Peter was unforgiven. Peter had already been forgiven. Jesus had already died on the cross and resurrected. Peter was forgiven. Jesus did that for the sake of Peter. So Peter wouldn't have the guilt, the condemnation. So that Jesus would show Peter, look, yeah, Peter, you messed up. But you still love me. I know you love me. Here's your chance to tell me, to overwrite those denials. And that's what, that's what our God does. That's his pattern. He wrecks. He comforts. And then he restores. Because after he says that to Peter, he goes, Peter, feed my sheep and follow me. Peter's wrecked, he's comforted, and he's restored. Job is wrecked. And we'll, we'll see that more tonight. But he also gets comforted by God. And then he's restored. And that's, we'll look at that kind of as the general pattern of our experience in being wrecked. It doesn't always play out in the same way, but the same pattern. Being wrecked, being comforted, and being restored. So we're going to finish the book of Job tonight. We're in chapter 40. And we'll, we'll see these things. And what, I mean, the big message here is that, of really probably the whole book, is that although God will wreck us, He will also comfort us and restore us. Okay, that's what He's trying to show to Job. So let's go to chapter 40. We'll start at verse 6. And then for the context here, now Job had just responded. So God shows up in chapter 38 and says, Job, answer me like a man. I'm going to question you. And he questions him. And here's Job's response after a couple chapters. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And that's where we got last week, where Job says, you know what? I'm not going to answer you. God asked for an answer. Job didn't answer. He said, no, I'm done. I'm done. But God wasn't done. There's still more of this process for Job to go through. And there's, there's a bit more wrecking to be done, sadly for Job and sadly for us, because that's a lot of times how it goes. Like we're, we think we're at our end, and then, no, it gets worse. Right? There's still more wrecking to be done. So, Starting at verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at, he, he questions Job. Again, we saw that last week. He asked Job a ton of questions. Job says, no, I'm not going to answer. So God says, no, Job, you're going to answer. He has more questions for him. He says, would you indeed annul 
my judgment. Okay, would you make my word into nothing? That's what it means to annul his judgment. God has declared, Job, are you annulling my judgment? Okay, Job had been saying, well, there's no purpose in serving God. The, the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. What's the purpose in serving God? Okay, he'd been annulling God's judgment. He's asking Job, would you annul my judgment? And these questions to Job, as Job is being wrecked, we should also take his questions to us. Would you annul God's judgment? How do you make what God says meaningless? And we all do this. We do this a lot, especially as we're being wrecked. We take what God says and then we annul it. We make it meaningless. See, God has a command. Do this. Don't do this. Do you listen? No, I mean, we annul the judgment that way. That's, that's pretty simple. We don't listen to what he commands, not all the time. We do like the Pharisees did when uh, Jesus condemned them. And uh, he said, your traditions you hold as higher than the word of God. And he told the Pharisees, God has said, honor your father and your mother. That's clear. That's a clear command of God. And Jesus said, but you Pharisees, for your tradition, said, well, here's how you can weasel out of that command. Give the money that you would have gave to your parents. Give it to God. Then you don't have to honor your parents. See, and Jesus says, you annul God's judgment. You make his word meaningless for the sake of your tradition. And we all do that. We all have our own ways of annulling God's judgment, of saying, no, God, it's not really what you say. See, what has God told you? And what is he telling you? That you're annulling. And why? What excuses do you make? The excuses are all pretty common. The ones I say is, well, I mean, if you look at all the verses about that, then... I can kind of weasel out of it. You know, it says not to judge, but there's certain times when judging is okay, so so I'm going to go ahead and judge as much as I want. Okay, so weasel out of it. There's all sorts of ways you can weasel. Well, you know what? Yeah, I, I goofed up, but God forgives, right? Which is true, but again, it's weaseling out. It's annulling God's judgment. And he asked Job, are you going to annul my judgment as you're being wrecked? And this is, this is God coming to him in force and questioning him. And then he asked him another question which I think is one of the best questions in the Bible, really, that explains so much about our world and the way we see God. He asked Job, verse 8, second part, Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? That says so much, that question. He's asking Job, are you going to bring me down so you can feel a little better about yourself? Yeah, we do that a lot. And why, why we do this? See, God's standards are perfection. And we know that. We feel that instinctually. That's called our conscience. Even if we don't worship God, that's called our conscience. And we know God has an unreachable standard of perfection. And since we can't reach it, well, here's our options. I can't reach that, God. Be my Savior. I put my faith in you. I'll follow you, Jesus, because you're my Savior. We could say that. Or we could say, well, uh, you know, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'll bring God down a little bit so I can make myself better. I'm a pretty good person. So God will probably accept me. I'm not as bad as some other people. So we bring God down so we can raise ourselves up. We condemn God so that we would be justified. And this, is, this goes for everyone. Non-Christians do this all the time. I did this as a non-Christian. Even when I didn't believe in God. It's funny how a God I didn't believe in, I would bring down so I could feel better about myself. Hey, well, if there is a God, he, he's kind of a jerk. I mean, he demands that people worship him. And, and what does he do? I mean, what is he on some power trip? I would say stuff like that. Not in that voice, right? But, but I would say things like that. Bring God down, a God I didn't believe in, right? 
to make myself feel better about myself so I can excuse myself from worshiping him. If you worship a false god, a different religion, it's the same thing. Well, your God doesn't have that much of a standard if you don't have to be perfect to be accepted by him. Right? If he doesn't demand that of you, that's kind of your, that doesn't say a lot about your false God, right? That, that he accepts some sort of sin. Our God doesn't. That's why he sends his son Jesus to give us his righteousness. If you're a nominal Christian, if you say you're a Christian, but it's, it's just a name, you're not born again, you're kind of trying to do this best of both worlds thing, I'm going to sin all I want and do whatever I want to do, but hey, I got God to forgive me, so, you know, it's all good. Well, that's, I think God is a loving God. Yeah, I know I've messed up a few times, but, but it's okay. He's a loving God, right? We bring him down to make ourselves feel better. But Christians, and we do this all the time as well. We bring God down so we can bring ourselves up. And one of the most common commands that God gives his people is be holy for I am holy. He says that several times in the Bible. I didn't count them. It's several though, at least several. Several times he says, be holy for I am holy. So that's a pretty high standard that he's telling us. Do we bring down God's standards so we can feel better about ourselves? And we tell ourselves the same kind of thing. Yeah, you sin, but God forgives. Yeah, that's true. But don't bring him down and just belittle your sin. Your sin is so bad that God died for it to forgive you of it and to just belittle it and bring him down. Well, I know God expects holiness, but he, just, he forgives. It's okay if I had a little, little accident. We don't want to get into condemnation, but we don't want to get into belittling sin and belittling God. Be holy for I am holy. They don't condemn God so that we would feel justified. And the, the question really would be this, as Christians, which is, you know, the main audience here, is why do we do this? We all do it. We all condemn God so that we would feel justified. Why, when we've been justified, we don't need to feel justified. We've been justified. We are more justified by God, then we can justify ourselves with our belittling God. See how God has justified us is with the blood of His Son has said, all your sins are paid for. What it means, the the word justification is that your case has been brought before God and it's been dismissed because the penalty has been paid because Jesus has bore your wrath that you deserved. And then He gives you His righteousness. So we've already been justified more than we can justify ourselves. So this thing we do where we belittle God so we can feel better, feel justified is really meaningless. God has forgiven us more than we can forgive ourselves. See, and that's how great God is. See, what I could say, it says, would you condemn me that you may be justified? I could say, well, you know what we should do? Christians, we should condemn ourselves so that God will be justified. I could say that, and that sounds kind of nice and kind of like that mean version of Christianity where God is kind of an ogre. It sounds kind of like that, but... That's not even what the Bible says. We don't need to condemn ourselves so that God will feel justified because the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this whole thing of condemning God so we can feel justified is utterly meaningless as Christians. We don't need to justify ourselves more than God has justified us. We don't need to condemn ourselves because God has said, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who justifies. So this whole thing we do that God is asking Job, would you condemn me? so that you would feel justified, is absolutely meaningless as Christians. We don't need to do any of this. right? God's standards are perfect. We have sinned. He has forgiven us. We don't need to belittle our sin to make ourselves look better. So he continues asking. Asking Job. Next question he asked him is, have you an arm like God? 
He's asking about his strength, his power. Can you do the things that I can do? Have you an arm like me? And we think that we're very great and that we can accomplish a lot of things. And we can. There's a lot of things that we can do. But really when we think about what we're powerless against, we can't say we have an arm like God's. That's, that's the question he's asking. And then he says, or can you thunder with a voice like his? Can your voice do what God's voice does? You know, I mean, if, if you were here uh, before church, I couldn't even get my four-year-old daughter to get off the stage with my voice. I mean, my voice is not all that powerful. Our voices aren't all that powerful. So he's asking Job, can you thunder with a voice like mine? Can you speak to people's hearts and transform them and breathe life into them? No, you can't. Now God can use people to do that, but that's the Holy Spirit. That's not people talking. So he asks him these questions, and they're questions to us. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? I mean, they're rhetorical questions, but the answer has to be no. But see, God continues, and He's still wrecking Job a little bit, quite a bit, we'll get to that. And He says, if you think you can do these things, now He has a challenge. So, again, a challenge to us. Have we annulled God's judgment? Yup. Have we condemned God so that we could feel justified? Yup. Have we thought we had an arm like God and we could do much more than we can? Yup. Have we thought we have a voice that thunders like God? Yep. Well, here's the challenge then. If we're going to boast in those things, here's his challenge to us. Verse 10. Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. But clothe yourself in righteousness. You can't do that. The Bible says our righteousness are like filthy rags. We cannot clothe ourselves with glory and beauty and majesty and splendor. He says, disperse the rage of your wrath. Like if you can do those things, if you think you can do those, if you can annul God's judgment, etc., then disperse the rage of your wrath. You know what? Really terrify people like God can. We can't do that. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. If you think you can do those things, annul his judgment, condemn him, etc., then humble the proud. Right? Do it. Prove it. Prove that you can do it. Then he says, tread down the wicked in their place, hide them in the dust together, find their faces in hidden darkness. If we think we have that much authority and control, that we can belittle God to make ourselves feel better, if we think we can do all that, then do these other things that only God can do. We can't do them. But the best part here is verse 14. He says, if you can do those things, if you can humble the proud, tread down the wicked, all those things he just said, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. He doesn't say, if you can do all those things, then I'll say that you're God. What he says, if you can do those things, then you know what, Job? You can save yourself. That's how powerful you are if you can do it. You can save yourself if you can do those things. But he can't. He can't do those things. We can't do those things. So what God, this is the end of the wrecking process. Right after this verse, God starts to comfort Job. And this is the end point. And that's so important. The end point of the wrecking process that he gets to with Job is that, Job, you can't save yourself. In the New Testament, it says the law, or Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Right? Job, I'm not saying, is not a Christian or is not a God-fearing man. The beginning of the book says that. But this is the end point of wrecking, is that we would see our dependence on God. We can't save ourselves. If we can do these things God has just asked Job to do, 
Then we can save ourselves. Then we have something to boast about. Then we don't need to trust God when we're being wrecked. But since we can't do it, this is the end point of the wrecking. Since you can't save yourself, God saves you. God comes to you with His strength and His judgment. And He lives a perfect life and He dies for us to save us. And He doesn't save us based on... It's based on faith. In order to show us we can't save ourselves in any way, there's no work we do that saves ourselves. It's by faith we receive that. And faith is outside of us. Faith is something that takes the focus off of us and puts it onto God. Right, so at the end of this wrecking, it's been a big process. I mean, we've been in Job for a long time. And it's all this stuff I've been saying, the death, the suffering, the sickness, the loss of possessions and comfort, the loss of friends. Right, and even God himself coming and saying, Job, you can't do all these things. The end of the wrecking point is, Job, you can't save yourself. As godly as you are, as righteous as you are, as God-fearing as you are, as good as you've been, you can't save yourself, Job. Yeah, that's the end of the wrecking. But then comes the comfort. Okay, after the wrecking, well, we kind of have this choice here. It's kind of like I said earlier. We can have the choice to turn to God and say, okay, I'm going to trust that, or to belittle Him and say, well, that must not be a very nice God. But the comfort comes here when we, when we turn to Him. Now, the way that God comforts Job is so weird. He brings up these uh, behemoth and leviathan. Which like, how is that a comfort? They're, it's very strange. Before we look at these, here's, let's lay the framework for this, about how God comforts him. Because it has to be very important. What God says, the last thing God tells Job, before Job repents and says, okay, I see now, is he explains to him this creature behemoth and this creature leviathan. And that's it. He doesn't explain to Job what he's talking about. He doesn't like offer any words of comfort. He just describes these creatures to him. And Job says, whoa, okay, I get it. So this is pretty important. Hey, what are these, these things? Before I go into it, there's a lot, of, a lot of debate on it. So at the most basic level, people will say, well, behemoth is a, something like a hippo. And Leviathan is something like a crocodile. At the, at the most basic thing, well, when you read the descriptions, that, I mean, they're more than that. That should be pretty obvious. Even if you say he's speaking poetically, God was talking about animals just a couple chapters ago, and he was being very literal. He's talking about an ostrich and how dumb the ostrich was to bury the eggs in the sand. So it doesn't seem that it would go from a very literal description of an animal to a very poetic description of an animal. So that's at its most basic. Some people will say, you know, they could be dinosaurs or something like that. I don't see that in here. Right? So the question is, how would Job take this in the, the culture of the time? And what, what would make sense for this being Job's comfort when God describes these two animals to him? Well, I'm going to say, and not just me, this is, this is you know, research and all that, is that behemoth is, uh, is a plural word describing a singular thing. And the singular of behemoth means like livestock or beast. So behemoth, behemoth, like plural, but used in the singular, means like super beast. Behemoth is a super beast. It's kind of a way you could say it. Leviathan is described as a uh, some sort of dragon, serpent, sea creature kind of thing. So I'm going to say, again, based off of 
plus the beginning with Satan. These are in some way demonic or satanic, these two creatures. Okay, because here's biblically how, how I, would, I would interpret that. Behemoth is the super beast. Revelation, there's the beast. Right? Leviathan is a uh, serpent, snake, dragon type creature. Revelation, okay, the dragon is Satan. And when we see how they're described, I, I think it'll make sense that way. The other part of this would be culturally. So Leviathan was a false god worshipped by a nearby nation. And the New Testament tells us that false gods are demonic. Right? That they're people who are worshipping demons. So based off of those things, okay, I don't think it's a hippo, I don't think it's a crocodile, I don't think it's a dinosaur. And the way that God uses these creatures to show Job something, that would be my best thing. I'm not saying that I'm right, but I'm saying that's the way I'm looking at it. That seems, And then it ties in with Satan from the beginning of the book. So let's look at that. Okay, because he's comforting him now. So here's Behemoth. Look now at the Behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips, and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him, and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. So behemoth, there's not as much description of, but here's kind of the key verse. It says verse 19, He is first in the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Right, so as he's, he's starting to comfort Job and he's describing this creature that people have no chance against. This thing, you can't even get near him. Hey, the only one who can get near this thing is the one who made him. Right, it doesn't sound like a hippo to me. I mean, we can kill a hippo. Uh, it's a thing outside of Job's control. Hey, this animal, this thing, this creature, he has no power over He's powerless against. And the only one, only he who made him can bring near his sword. God is saying, look, these things outside of your control, they're in my control. The one who made him can come near with the sword. And that's behemoth. Let's look at Leviathan now because that becomes a little more clear. This is all of chapter 41. Again, this is the last thing God says to Job. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his graceful proportions. 
Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride. Shut up tightly is with his seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. Strength dwells in his neck, and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone, when he raises himself up. The mighty are afraid because of his crashings there beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor to spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Slingstones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are like sharp potsherds. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. On earth there is nothing like him, which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. So like I'm saying, this is God comforting Job. The next thing Job says is, he gets it now. He sees what God is doing. And look at how he describes Leviathan. Which again, I'm saying it's not 100%, but that's my interpretation of it, is that the way he describes Leviathan, will he make many supplications to you? Is this creature, your ultimate spiritual enemy, is he going to make supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him? Will you leash him for your maidens? Like this thing, are you going to get him under control? Are you going to be able to do that? That's what God is asking him. And then he tells him in verse 8, Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. Any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? See, the spiritual battles that we fight, and that's what really, from the beginning of the book, that's what this has been about. Right? That God is pleased with Job. And Satan accuses Job to God. And says, he only loves you because you bless him. Take it away. And that's been the whole book. You're trying to battle that by yourself? Remember the battle. Never do it again. You can't fight this creature. He says towards the end of the chapter, none of your weapons can do anything against Leviathan, against Satan, against demonic forces. But verse 10 is where God shows his victory over these things. No one is so fierce that you would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Me is God. Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. So these demons that are chasing you, these forces of darkness that are oppressing you, (coughs) we can't fight those things. But what God is saying is that is under my control. And what the Bible says in the New Testament is that the satanic forces, that Jesus triumphed over them in the cross. Because Satan's attack is, you're not good enough. You can't do it. You're going to mess up again. You're not all that great. God doesn't like you. The same stuff he said about Job. What the cross says is that Jesus is saying, God is saying, yeah, I love these people so much. 
that I'm going to die for them. It doesn't matter what you say, Satan, because I am God and I'm going to die for these people. And it says that he triumphed over them in victory through the cross. And then it says in Romans that neither uh, principalities or powers or darkness will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and that we are more than conquerors in Christ in these things. So what God is saying to Job, these spiritual battles that you're fighting, you're going to lose. Your greatest enemy is going to defeat you. Death is going to defeat us as well. But God is saying that thing that you have no chance against, I have on a leash. So be trusting in me. He's telling him, Job, I'm fighting your battles for you. I'm the one in control, no matter what it looks like. See, it's like when the Israelites were going to enter the promised land. They've been, uh, they were in slavery in Egypt, which is symbolic of spiritual slavery, slavery to sin. And God brings them out through miracles, through the plagues, through the the death of the firstborn children of Egypt. And God brings them out and parts the sea. And they're wandering through the desert. And after they're wandering, and God gives His law to the children of Israel. As they're about to enter the promised land, God says, go in there. That's the land that I've promised to you. Go in there. And they send in spies to go in. And the spies come back and say... Yeah, this land looks great, guys. But there's some really big people in there. Hey, they look tough. They look powerful. I don't think we should go in. And the people of Israel listened to the spies. Said, okay, yeah, we're not going in. But God had told them, go in. Don't be worried about how bad your enemies look, how big they are. I am fighting your battles. Trust me, go in. But they looked at what was in front of them. I'm not going to fight that battle. I don't care what God says. We're not going to do it. So God says, okay, you don't want to fight the battle, then you're going to wander the desert for 40 years. None of you are going to enter. Your kids will enter, but not you. Well, then they said, now we want to fight it now, God. We want to fight the battle now. So they try to, and they fail. And they wander for 40 years. And what he's telling them is, I'm fighting your battles. These things that will defeat you, you have the choice to trust him. And boldly go, because we are more than conquerors in Christ. That's what the Bible says. Or to look at what's in front of us and say, no, God, I'm not going to fight that battle. I don't trust you. I'm not going to fight it. That's what he's presenting to Job. All this stuff that's got you down, that you're suffering, that's wrecking you, I'm in control of. And your choice is you're going to trust me to fight the battle, or you're not. See, and that's how he, he comforts him. Now we... Let's... Finish up the, the last chapter. We'll try to go quickly. Job's response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. See, it was God showing Job, your greatest enemies, your demons, I'm in control of, I'm fighting your battles. Now Job finally answers. The last time Job talked, he said, I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to shut up. Now Job answers and he says, you can do everything. No purpose can be withheld from you. What you're going to do, God, you're going to do. And I'm going to trust that because you're in control. You are God. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? 
That's what God asked him when he showed up. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. See, Job just got done being wrecked. Remember, he just he was in his suffering. God was questioning him. Can you do these things? And then God shows him that he is more powerful than his enemies. And now what Job is saying, I was talking about stuff I didn't understand. When I was saying it's not, not worth it to serve you, God, I didn't know what I was talking about. And he calls this, these things were too wonderful for me. The things in his suffering that just a minute ago were wrecking him. Now when he sees God's victory over his greatest enemies, he says, this was too wonderful for me. I didn't understand what you were doing. And then he says, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job had been a godly person. He'd been doing the right things. But now he sees. And it was in that being wrecked, being comforted. And now he sees. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, this should be our response. I mean, I don't, it's probably not going to be. I know we're, it's going to take a lot to get there. But this is what God does. He wrecks us. And the end point of wrecking is, I can't save myself. That's what he showed him. Then God comforts him. No, you can't save yourself. But I can. And I have. And I came for you. And I died for you. And now you are more than a conqueror in in Jesus. And you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And these enemies that you're fighting have already been defeated in Christ. So Job isn't sorry for himself. He isn't angry. He sees. So then God goes even one step beyond. That's what he does. Now he restores Job. Let's finish the book. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of Job's friends, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And look how God works. Yeah, the friends failed Job, and now Job is praying for them, that they would be forgiven. I think that's, that's really uh, insightful. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and went and did as the Lord commanded them. For the Lord had accepted Job, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Huppuk. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. So a couple last things. 
to close tonight as we finish this book. We worship a God who loves to restore. That's, that's what he does. He restored Peter. He's restoring this world. He's making all things new. And he restored Job right here. But that doesn't erase Job's suffering. A lot of people read this like it's a great happy ending and everything's happily ever after. It doesn't say that Job's suffering was just gone like that. It doesn't say, well, Job had more kids, so the kids that already died, he didn't care about. It doesn't say that. It didn't erase Job's suffering. In fact, Job still had to be comforted. And look at that, it's beautiful. Uh, Verse 11, his brothers, his sisters, his friends came to him and ate food with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord brought upon him. He still had to be comforted. They didn't ask him, you know, how you doing? Oh, you're doing pretty good. Okay, I'll pray for you. They came to him and ate with him and comforted him and consoled him. And he still had to be comforted. It also doesn't mean that this is exactly what God does every time. It doesn't mean, well, one of your kids dies, you get two. That's not... It's not what it's saying. Sometimes the restoration doesn't happen in this life. A lot of times it doesn't. When Jesus died and he resurrected, he wasn't restored to his glory till he went back to heaven. Our restoration, in this sense, probably won't happen in this lifetime. But it does happen in the next one. That's a promise from God that he's prepared a place for us. And he will reward us according to what we've done for him. And finally... Just to point out that God didn't have to answer Job. God didn't have to answer Job, but he did. And Job was thankful. Things were too wonderful for me, but now I see. God didn't have to come and comfort him, but he did. God didn't have to save us, but he did. So our God restores those who repent. That's the whole storyline of the Bible. That we were up here with God, We ruined it because of sin. And then it's this whole story of being wrecked and being wrecked and being wrecked. And all of humanity just keeps wrecking itself. And the low point is that Jesus, when he's crucified. But to those who repent, that's us, right? That we get wrecked and wrecked and wrecked, maybe even our whole lives. But God comes to comfort and God restores. So let's repent. That's what Job did. That's what we should do. If you're not a Christian, you need to repent for the first time. It is where you turn from sin and turn to Jesus and put your faith in Him. Where you recognize that, yeah, you have annulled God's judgment. You have condemned Him. And you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can. So you follow Him by faith. For those of us who are Christians, we repent every day. That's what we do. Because we will be restored, maybe not in this lifetime, but the next one. Jesus is great. He is God. He makes judgments. We don't. He condemns and justifies. We don't. He disperses the rage of his wrath. He humbles those who are proud. He saves us by his right hand. And he doesn't just defeat evil. He's in control of it, which is so much greater. And then he restores those who repent. So let's pray. Well, Father, this is a a hard book, God. But help us to trust you, to know that whatever is happening, whatever battles we're fighting, you are in control of. And we know that you are good. And we know that you restore. That's who you are. 
So God, help us to trust that. Help us to repent. Help us to see you. Help us to turn to you and trust you. And let you have the victory that we have in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.